Hi, this is Mark Brady. I'm the pastor at Anchor Faith Church in Valdosta, Georgia. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast today. We believe it will bless you and minister to you. I get ready to receive a word from God. Glory to God. You reign, amen. You overcome, amen. Because he overcame, you can overcome. And you will. You will overcome. Go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16, if you will. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Hallelujah. If I could get just a little bit of my vocal in the monitors up here, that'd be great. I don't know how loud I am. Hallelujah. 1 Samuel chapter 16. We, we've heard this story, read this story, seen this story before of when the King David is anointed. You guys know how it ends. He's anointed king. He goes and he fights Goliath. He wins that battle. He runs from King Saul for about uh, 14 years or so, and then he eventually becomes king. We, we kind of know how all that plays out, but I want to take a different look um, at this story today. First Samuel chapter 16. I want to start with verse 1. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel. Everyone say rejected. He says, fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected. Everyone say selected. Because I have selected for myself a king from his son. So he is rejecting the current king Saul. And he's already selected the next king, David. Samuel asked, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. Because no king, no reigning king, current king, wants to know that his replacement's already been chosen. And if it's possible... I'd like to step in and thwart that plan. I'll do anything, uh, you know, when you're in a position of authority and, uh, you know, you are comfortable there, then uh, you don't want to hear that there's already been a replacement selected for you. And so out of fear, Samuel says, how can I go and do this? Well, the Lord answered, take a young cow with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me. And then he says this statement, the one I indicate to you. <laughs> you would think after that would be a name, right? Or some, some specifications about the individual that he's going to look for, right? Uh, you think that there would be some qualities mentioned there or, um, you know, at least some kind of criteria listed Uh, that God would have that would say, these are the qualities I'm looking for. This is the type of specifications you're to hone in on. These are the characteristics I'm looking for in the next king, right? This is a pretty important decision. We've got a king that's already blown it. King Saul in the previous chapter has pushed God to the limit. He disobeyed God in a command to go and utterly destroy all the Amalekites. The word came from the prophet Samuel. He doesn't follow this command. Uh, Prophet Samuel uh, steps up to the plate and says, hey, 
I hear a bunch of dead stuff talking. I hear a bunch of cows lowing and a bunch of sheep uh, bowing, whatever sheep do, making sheep noises. (laughs) What does the sheep say, right? What does the fox say? I hear people wailing, uh, there's a king over here, all this stuff's supposed to be dead, what's going on? And he says, oh, you know, the people wanted to, to keep the good stuff, you know, we want to sacrifice it to the Lord. You, do, you have utterly disobeyed the command of the Lord. Obedience is greater than sacrifice, and today God has removed you, rejected you as king, and he's already selected the next king. That happened in 1 Samuel 15, 1 Samuel 16. Samuel here, the prophet, is mourning the rejection of Saul. And God says, what are you doing? Get up. I've already got the next king selected. Let's go out and get him. It's a big decision. Right? We don't want to get two kings that are horrible choices. We've already made one horrible choice. Don't want to get the next one and then that's going to mess it up just as bad as the first one. But the only criteria he gives them is you're going to go to this town and you're going to invite this dad. And his, one of his sons will be king. That's all he gets. He says, I will tell you which one to anoint, the one that I indicate to you. Don't you love how God gets you just to take the step of faith with just bare minimum information? He tells Abraham, you know, it's funny. Abraham gets specifics on what he's supposed to leave behind, but is very vague on where he's supposed to go. Y'all want you to leave your town of your father and of your family, and I want you to go to a place I will show you. God, you are really detailed on this aspect, but I really need some details on this aspect. Could you give me anything? I will show you as you go, and you will know when you get there. Great. Well, that's all that Samuel has to go off of. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. And when the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, Do you come in peace? In peace, he replied. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and invited them to sacrifice. Well, almost all of them, right? When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, so Samuel's literally having this conversation with him, with himself, certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. I mean, he's, a, he's pretty confident. This is the guy, the first one up. We've, we've nailed it. I mean, this is awesome. The, I mean, I, you know, he didn't give me the criteria. He didn't give me the specifications. He didn't, you know, he just said, you will anoint the one that I indicate. This has got to be the guy. Something about this guy naturally to, to the prophet's natural eyes stood out and said, this is your man. He meets the criteria. He meets the criteria. Well, the Lord said to Samuel in verse 7, Do not look at his appearance or his stature, because I have, everyone say it, 
rejected him. Look what he says in this next statement. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible. But the Lord sees the heart. We know we've seen it in the New King James. For man looks at the outward opinion uh, appearance. But God looks at the heart. God looks at the inward, right? So right here we learn a, a very valuable principle of God's selection criteria and God's uh, selecting manner. We learn that it's not what you see, it's how you see it. It's not what you see, it's how you see it. Come on, we've all heard the statement, it's not what you say, it's how See, it's not what you're looking at, but it's how you're looking at it. And so God is identifying with the prophet, uh, we've got a, a vision problem. We've, we've got a sight problem. We've got a seeing problem. You don't see it how I see it. You don't see it the way I see it. You, you aren't selecting based on the same criteria that I use. You are selecting based on your ability to choose. You're selecting and choosing based on the criteria that you have. So Jesse called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either. It only took him to the second son to realize, okay, I got you, Lord. I got you, God. You're, you're using a different set of rules here. You've got a different standard in place. You've got a different criteria by which you are using as your selection process. This isn't the guy. And after Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. And I find it interesting, again, the details that God gave. He knew the town to go to. He knew the family to go to. He knew the dad to call upon. He knew that it's going to be one. But the one detail he left out, which seems to be the most important detail, was the name of the son. We could have gotten past all the seven. But see, God isn't wanting you to just choose what. God's wanting you to choose how he chooses. God doesn't want you to just choose what he chooses. God wants you to know how he comes to that conclusion of what he chooses. He wants you to get in on the process of choosing. He wants to get you in on the selection process. He wants to clue you in, not just on, because see, sometimes that's where we run awry in life, is we want to know what God is doing, and we have no interest in how he's arriving there. And God wants you to become interested in what he's interested in. God wants you to share his values, share his purpose, share his standards, his standards. Now, Samuel, this is actually the third time that Samuel has been charged with selecting a leader for God's people. 
And so by this point, Samuel should have already figured some things out. By this point, Samuel should have already had some practice in the pattern of selecting a leader. This is not the first time Samuel has had to go and find a leader for God's people. It's not the second time. I know many of you are thinking about King Saul. Well, yeah, that's right. He had to go find King Saul, right? Well, go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. And starting with verse 1. Starting with verse 1. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Samuel took upon himself to select the judges over God's people. Samuel took upon him, we didn't have kings over Israel at this point. Other nations had kings, but Israel had not yet established a a nation that was going to be ruled and led by a king. They had not established that yet. Up to this point, God would raise up men and women known as judges that would lead their people out of issues out of struggles out of bondage because y'all remember the the book of judges right the book of judges is the cycle the book of judges is where god's people are doing well and then they forsake the commands of god and then they start living to their own ways then they get in trouble and then god raises up a judge and gets them out of their mess and they're doing well again and then they depart from the ways of god and they start doing what they want to do, living selfishly, living to their own desires, uh, taking on, even worshiping the gods and the idols of the people that they were supposed to be transforming into God's nation, right? Uh, uh, Then God would raise up Gideon. God would raise up Samson. God would raise up Ehud. God would raise up Deborah. God would raise up all these judges that would get them out of the cycle, out of the mess, and they'd end up right back in the mess. Well, Samuel now, the prophet Samuel, has taken upon himself, I will select the ones that will be the next judges over Israel. My sons. My sons. But look what verse 2 says. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain took bribes, and perverted justice. These are the sons of Samuel, the prophet. Not quite the candidates to be judges over Israel. Not quite meeting the criteria, the standard. Not sharing the values of what God would want his leader his man, his woman, his person that's going to be a, a judge and ruler over the uh, nation of Israel, they don't meet the criteria. But he selects them anyways. He selects them anyways. Which, as a little side note, I find interesting. Because when Samuel was a boy, 
He lived in the house of a man named Eli, the priest. And Eli had the same exact problem, had sinful, disobedient sons. And as a boy, God called to Samuel three times. And he went back to Eli, and Eli said, I did not call you. Go back to sleep. Oh, you must have called me. I did not call you. Go back. The next time you hear that voice, say, here I am, Lord. Your servant is listening. And the Lord shared with him as a boy what Eli's sons were doing and how they weren't good candidates. We're just repeating the cycle of what we're passing down to the next generation, what we're, what we're handing. Well, now Samuel has raised sons that don't walk after the way of the Lord, that aren't keeping the way of the Lord. And he selects them to be the next judges over Israel. Strike one. Strike one. Well, then it says in verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations of Israel. And all this time I read this passage, and I was thinking, how crazy for these people to be wanting a king when God is their king. And, you know, in the next verses, Samuel gets upset. He's displeased by it. I think that's the very next uh, uh, verse, verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And so Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. But in all of that, Samuel was the one that started this problem. Samuel was the one that started this issue. See, by not accurately understanding the criteria and the how of what God wants, rather than just the what of God wants, here's the problem. We will accept things that God is rejecting, and we will reject things that God is accepting. The title of my message today is the context of contentment. The context of contentment. And to be content, I I looked up the word content. It means this, satisfied. Content means satisfied. It means a state of satisfaction. A state of satisfaction. Other words for content are peaceful, gratified, comfortable. And pleased. Peaceful, gratified, comfortable, and pleased. And what's interesting, what's interesting to me is that over these next several passages that we'll look at, we'll find, see, typically when we read 1 Samuel 16, we highlight on what God selects, right? David. I believe it's as equally important to highlight what God rejects. I believe it's equally as important to look at what God is not content with. Where he finds discontentment. Where he finds a dissatisfaction. And this is what I found. Your level of contentment is revealed by the standards you keep. Your level of contentment 
is actually revealed by the standards you keep. What you are content with and what you are discontent with is revealed by the standards and the values and the criteria that must be met. Think about it. Anything in your life that you would deem, I'm content with that. I'm content with this vehicle. I'm content with this home. I'm content with this phone. I'm content with this relationship. I'm content with this job. Anything that you become content with, there are standards that are being met. And what happens is one of two things. You either reject the thing until you become content with it because it meets the standards you want, or you lower your standards so you become content with it even though it's not exactly what you want. Contentment has a context. You know, there, there, there's, contentment is relative to everybody. Contentment is relative to everybody. You know, I talk about vacations. You know, we got spring break coming up, and we just planned our, our spring break trip going back to, to Texas to see my family. They haven't even met uh, uh, Austin yet. My dad is the only one that's met Austin because he was here uh, helping us with Camden while Austin was in the hospital. Nobody else has met him. And so, you know, we were like, you know, let's plan a trip for the summer. And then I was thinking, wait a minute. It's hot in the summer. And if that's how cold their winter was, I don't want to know how hot their summer's going to be. And so we said, man, let's bump that thing up. Let's go at spring break. And so, you know, we're, we're going out there. Well, that's stuff that I like to do. I, you know, it, for me, a vacation is not laying on the beach. It's not. It's just not, it's not a vacation for me. I have no, I'll do it to satisfy. I'll lower my standards to <laughs> gratify family. And I'm not, my wife's not even really a big beach person, but obviously all of her family lives at the beach in St. Augustine. So, you know, Easy to end up there, two hours away. But that's just not my thing, man. Sitting around, I, I'm a I'm a busybody. I'm in a hurry to get in a hurry. If I'm not in a hurry, I'll get in a hurry to find something to get in a hurry about. That's just the way. I, I don't. I'm not a good downtime person. I'm not a good quiet time person. I, I like. Busyness, traffic, people. I like New York City and Chicago and Dallas, Texas and Fort Worth, Texas and, and San Antonio, Texas and well, any place else in Texas. They're all good. Everything's bigger in Texas. I, that's just me. You know, I'm, some of you guys, I'm making you cringe in your skin like, oh, no. Concrete and buildings and noise and horns and and I just I don't know I just I love the buildings. You can always tell uh, uh, you know a a tra- uh, someone that's traveling in a big city because they're doing this the whole time. You know everybody else is just looking straight ahead. They don't care. That's just me. That's the stuff that I like to do. I I just I'm, that's me. That's where I'm content. That's my happy place, man. But, you know, for most people, it means going to the mountains quietly, going to the beach and listening to the waves. But see, 
you know, contentment's funny because when I was mentioning the city, those of you that don't find any contentment there were thinking about all the stuff you hate about the city. But when I mentioned the beach, you were thinking about all the things you love about the beach. Well, when I mentioned the city, I'm thinking about all the things I love about cities. My wife gets on to me all the time. I'm a people watcher. And she'll get, because I'll just stare at you. And I don't even care if you see me staring at you. She'll, I mean, every day of our life, you're staring again. I know. I'm, it's interesting. I'm, something's about to happen. I, I can feel it. So I think of all this stuff, but when you when when the beach is mentioned, I'm thinking sand and towels and crates of things and tents that you stake in the ground 18 times and they blow over 18 times and I you know I don't I don't have any interest in any of that. I I enjoy it when I get there, but that's just I'm thinking of all the stuff I don't like about it, right? And we do this with God. We do this with God. He's pointing us in a direction and we think about the stuff that we don't like. And he's trying to get us to the stuff that we haven't even seen yet, haven't even imagined yet, don't even know about yet. I find it so interesting. I'm, we're going to flip-flop a lot, but keep your finger there in 1 Samuel 8. Go back to 1 Samuel 16. The first verse just blows me away. Because if you read 1 Samuel 15 and the whole altercation that takes place with the prophet Samuel and King Saul. 1 Samuel 16, the very first verse says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn? How long will you mourn for Saul? What? You'd be thinking... This guy's been a thorn in my flesh. God, please replace this guy. Please get this guy out. Please remove him. Please let this, get me anybody else in this office. This is tormenting my life. This guy doesn't listen to anything I say. He's arrogant. He's prideful. He doesn't even care about following the ways of the Lord. He's, he's insecure. I mean, please find me the next king. And, he, and God says, how long will you mourn for King Saul? And it's amazing when we become content with something. You know, God rejected Saul before Samuel did. Isn't that amazing? That's why there's, contentment has a context. And apparently God and Samuel are on opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to what they're content with. Because Samuel is mourning the fact that God is removing the kingdom of Israel from him. And, you know, you could say, well, you know, he feels bad for Saul. Feels bad for the guy. I mean, you know, he started out good, started out, you know, wide-eyed and, and, you know, man, this is, I mean, he was humble in the beginning. How did he become so selfish and arrogant? Uh, you know, uh, maybe he just feels bad for King Saul. Or, or, or maybe, maybe. Samuel is struggling with an issue within himself. 
Maybe Samuel is struggling with an issue that I selected this guy. I brought, I, I, I just wonder if there's an element where Samuel's taking this personally. Because remember, we're in this mess because his sons weren't the ones that worked out. See, when, we, when we're talking about contentment, when we're talking about satisfaction in life, yeah, there are things we need to learn to become satisfied with, but there are things we need to learn to become dissatisfied with. There are things we got to learn to become discontent with. And I wonder how many of us are like Samuel. We're mourning the thing God has rejected rather than celebrating the thing God has selected. We are crying over the thing God is already trying to remove and moved on from. While the thing on the other side is so much greater than what you're trying to hold on to right now in the season you're in. I wonder how many of us are in that same situation. Mourning the loss of what God is trying to remove. And we are selecting what God is rejecting. And we are at the same time, rejecting what God has selected. He almost missed out on David because he selected the next thing that came right across. Because he selected the first thing that was on the table. I mean, Samuel's selection criteria and selection process is so skewed at this point. And so God is, I've never seen this before, but God is trying to perform something in Samuel through this process. He could have easily said, this guy has eight sons. There's seven of them that look like they are, are kingly, that they are majestic, like they're, but there's another guy out in the field and you're gonna miss it if I don't give you a heads up. So I'm just letting you know, he's out in the field and they're not even gonna invite him to the party, but make sure you have them bring the eight. And we could just skip one through seven. We could just jump right past one through seven, no good. His name's David, he's a shepherd boy. You're not gonna think he meets the criteria, but he's my man, just trust me on this and he doesn't give him any of that information because he's trying to help Samuel understand I select differently I have different standards than you and I need you to share my values I need you to share my standards I, or else you're going to miss everything else that I have for you in life we started off with your sons. They don't even walk in my way, and you're trying to make them the judge over the people. Well, then we learn in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, jump back over there. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Verse 6, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Because remember, not only are they asking to select a king, they are rejecting his choice as leader. Remember that. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. He's letting them know, don't take this personally. 
Why is he having to let him know that? Because on the inside, Samuel is saying, my level of contentment doesn't match their level of what they are satisfied is not what I was satisfied with. And they're calling me to a higher level because my guys aren't, my sons aren't even living right. They're not even walking in the ways of the, of the Lord. And so their answer was, well, give us a king that will reign over us. And the first thing God tells him is, don't take it personal. This isn't about you. Ultimately, they're rejecting me as their king. Because whether it's a judge, whether it's a priest, whether it's a prophet, whether it's a king, I'm the one ruling. And see, God knows the intention. God knows their intention right here. God knows their motive. God knows that their motive isn't that they are just rejecting Samuel's sons. If you skip on down to verse 20 or verse 19, Verse 19, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but we will have a king over us. Look at this, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, you only want someone to judge you if you think you're in right alignment. So ultimately, we want a king that's going to tell us how good we are. Nobody wants to be judged, right? You see all those crazy people that go on American Idol that have no clue what they're doing, and they get up there to be judged. They're not going up there because they sincerely want their input on how horrible of a singer. They want to hear from somebody honorable, somebody experienced, somebody that knows what they're talking about, how good I am. Have you ever noticed how blown away some of those people are to find out how awful singing they are? Are you serious? You have no self-awareness at all. That you, yet you have no friends. You have nobody in your corner that will tell you the truth even if it's the hardest thing to hear. Everybody in your life is a yes man. Everybody in your life is, oh, man, you need to go on American Idol. You are amazing. You are getting opportunities you should never have had. They set you up. I feel bad for you. Oh, nobody wants to be judged to be told how awful they're doing. We want someone to Tell us how awesome of a nation we are. And he's going to go before us and he's going to fight our battles. And then this, and we want to be like every other nation. Oh, be careful applying someone else's standards to your assignment. Be careful applying someone else's standards to your assignment. No, now they're not even living up to the standard God called them to live by. Now they have lowered themselves that we want to live like them. Lost people. This is God's people. This is Israel. This is the nation of God. This is God's chosen people. 
His selected, you're not supposed to want to look like everybody else. You're supposed to want to stand out. Look at all those crazy nations with their kings. We don't need a king. We've got God as our ruler, and whoever he establishes, that's who we're going to trust in to lead us out because God has empowered them, and God has put his spirit on them. But they have lost that complete context, and now their level of contentment is resorting to what other people are doing. And when you lose sight of God's standards for your life, you will quickly begin to covet other people's standards. Well, why do they get that? Why do they have that? Well, why, why do they get to drive that? And why do they live there? And, 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 and it, beca- it turns into covetousness. It turns into envy. It turns into strife. It, it, it turns into feeling uh, below. This was God's people. They're supposed to be the head and not the tail. They're supposed to be above and not beneath. Other nations are supposed to be coming to them saying, what are y'all doing and how can we duplicate it? Instead, they're looking at other nations saying, why don't we have that? Because they lost sight of God's standards. Because they lost sight of God's values. And now they've become content with living below God's best. And we do this. We do this. We live below God's best for us. We live below God's standards for us. We, be, we live below God, what God wants in our relationships. We live below what God wants in our own identity and success and self-worth and value. We live below what God wants for us financially. We live below and we become content with it. Because you always become content with whatever you set a standard for. And you reject the things that God has for you. And you select the things God is trying to remove from you. Oh, it's, 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 it's a dangerous, dangerous way to live. And so God is, is, is trying to work in the prophet Samuel. Samuel heard all these words, verse 21, 1 Samuel 8. 21, he heard all these words of the people and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. So we got to learn a little bit about Samuel. Going back to, you go to first nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. But where we catch up to Samuel in, in 1 Samuel 16, we're, we're discovering something about Samuel. We're discovering something about his inability to align his standards and his values with what God wants. And so God doesn't direct him specifically to an individual, yet he tells them, I will let you know when you are standing before the anointed one. And remember what he said about Eliab. Remember what he said. Do not look at his outward appearance or his stature. Something about his height, something about how he carries himself, something about his stance, something about his looks, told Samuel, and God had to catch him on the first one. He had to catch him and say, don't look at any of that stuff. 
That's not my criteria. Well, if you go to 1 Samuel chapter 9, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zerot, the son of Bacorath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. So this is no, we, the, the name we just mentioned, a mighty man of power. That's not Jesse. We're talking about Saul's dad versus David's dad. David didn't come from the same line that Saul came from. So family lineage, check. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, I don't know why it's important how tall he was from his shoulders up. Does he have a really long neck or a really tall head? I don't know. I don't know what that's supposed to reference. But apparently it's speaking to his stature. He was the most handsome man in all of Israel. I'm picturing the guy from um, Beauty and the Beast. What was his name? Gaston, that's who I think, like chiseled jaw and, and, you know, jet black hair. I mean, of all the children of Israel, this is the guy. We found him. So appearance, check. Family lineage, check. Height, check. Stature, check. He's checking the boxes, man. Samuel goes to the guy. That's checking the boxes. Samuel goes to the guy that's checking the outward appearance. Well, this must be the guy. He looks kingly. He looks royal. He looks majestic. He comes from a family of great power and wealth. He, he, he has a strong family lineage. Uh, he's taller than everybody else, and he's just the way he carries himself, uh, head and shoulders above everybody else, uh, the, the, the good-looking, so he's easy to accept and easy to receive uh, among the people. Checking the boxes. I find it interesting that in 1 Samuel chapter 16, God has to address Samuel's inability to look beyond the outward appearance. The inability to look deeper down into the character of a man, the heart of a man. And you know what's interesting? When he saw Eliab, what did he say? Surely, This is God's anointed one standing before me, confident. You know why? Because when we do finally move on from what God rejects, we typically go right back to what was familiar from the last time we selected something. (laughs) God's trying to show us something completely new. 
God's trying to take you somewhere you've never been, and yet you're still picking stuff based on your criteria. You're still selecting things in your life and receiving things into your life based on what you think fits the mold. And God is trying to say, I'm not even using that criteria. I'm not even using those standards. You don't even have my values. How can we select what God wants if we don't even know how he selects it? And he almost missed out on a shepherd boy, ruddy and handsome, red-haired, because he was going to select based on the same criteria he used the last time. We, we, I mean, if God didn't stop him, he would have anointed Eliab right on the, I don't even need to see two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Just give me number one. This guy right here, this has got to be the guy. Surely this is the Lord's anointed. The Lord's chosen. No. You're using the wrong criteria. You're using the wrong standards. See, man selects what God rejects. And God selects what man rejects. It might not fit your criteria. It might not fit your mold. It might not check off your boxes. But guess what? God's selecting it. And when God's hand is upon it, and when God is working through it, and when that thing is served up to God, it becomes something so great. It becomes something so mighty. It becomes something so strong. This was a man that God eventually said, that's a man after my own heart. He was out in the field. He wasn't even invited to the party. They had forgot about him. And Samuel, on the other hand, was ready to pour the oil on a lime and said, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 don't, don't, don't let that out. What? What's the problem? What's the problem? What's going on? This is the guy. Oh, you're selecting based on the outward appearance. I'm selecting based on the heart. Well, how am I supposed to know the heart? You get to know his heart. Get to know the father's heart. Because David was a man after God's own heart. So David's heart was chasing after God's heart. How would he have found David? By first discovering God. See, when we go out trying to select based on our own ability to determine and identify and find and, and oh, th is this the right situation? Is that the right person? Is this the right opportunity? And when you don't have the heart of God, you are already at a disadvantage. How can I find the right opportunity out there? Get to know my father in here. I will promise you, you will make the right selection 100% of the time if you have the Father's heart, the Father's best interest at your heart. I'm reminded of Jesus when he was uh, uh, ministering. He had just talked to the disciples. Who do the people say that I am? And then we had all those different answers. And Peter said, well, I believe you're the, the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. And he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail. And then a few verses later, uh, uh, Jesus starts telling his disciples about the fact that he's going to be crucified. He's going to be offered up. He's going to uh, uh, be handed over. Right? We hear all these things. 
And what does Peter do? May it never be. I will make sure that never happens to you. And Jesus says what? Get thee behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. And he goes on and says this. For you do not have the interest of God. You have your man's interests. You have the interest of men. You're being motivated by what you want. And your selection criteria doesn't align with my father's criteria. And so this opportunity that man would reject, God has selected. Going to the cross, no man selected that. Being mocked and made fun of, no man selected that. Jesus didn't even choose that. He was led by his father because he knew his father's heart. I only go where the Father tells me to go. I only say what the Father tells me to say. I only do what the Father tells me to do. Therefore, I am selecting what my Father would select. And what other men would reject, that's the one that I'm going to select. We got to get this component. We got to see this element. Hallelujah. So in in, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, just to look at it again, says he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person. He was taller than any of the people. Ultimately, what was Samuel selecting on? What met his needs, what met his criteria, what met his standards. And God is trying to raise him to a higher standard, a new standard, a standard he doesn't even know. You know, God's standards far exceed man's standards. The best you can find, the best you can do on your own pales in comparison. To what God can find. But we have to have our father's interest. We have to have our father's interest. The last item I want to show you. 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 1. You know, King Saul, he was good looking, but he wasn't a good listener. Which would you rather want? You know, in leadership, I I teach our leaders, which would you rather want? A talented person that doesn't submit? Come on now. Talented person that can't follow orders? A talented person that can't remain under authority? Or a person that may lack in talent but is available, willing, trustworthy, teachable, receives correction? applies instruction, is quick to respond, has your best. And I tell you what, the most valuable thing you could ever have in life is have someone that has your best interest at heart. So what's the criteria? First Samuel chapter 10 and verse one. And Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? Notice there, it says that Samuel took a flask of oil, a jar, 
flask of oil, a jar. But 1 Samuel chapter 16, speaking of David, jump over to 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 13. First Samuel 16, 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil. Samuel took a horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. In 1 Samuel 10, the word of the Lord says that Samuel took a flask of oil. A flask is a jar. A flask is a jar that is man-made, made by the hands of man, welded, put together by man. But David was anointed by a horn, a ram's horn, that man did not make, man did not construct, man did not put together, man did not choose. Man did not identify. Man didn't create the standard, didn't set the rules. God did. What's he trying to say? I am anointing what I have put my hand upon. Quit rejecting what God is trying to introduce into your life. Because if you're man-made, We're going to change the criteria. Worship team, if you come. we got to change the criteria. You know what's interesting about being chosen? The criteria under which you are chosen has a lot to do with your effectiveness. You remember Samuel? Or I'm sorry, you remember King Saul? I think it's in chapter 17. Goliath is roaring and mocking and intimidating God's people. And King Saul has the nation of Israel hiding out in the side of the mountain. Right? The the guy that's taller than everybody. The guy with the appearance. Sometimes it's just appearance, guys. Sometimes it's just what it looks. It's just about how it looks. You ever notice that? Some, Some things in life, it's just all looks. There's no content to it. There's nothing deep to it. It's just all showy and flashy on the outside. But when you get down to it, when you really need it to do something. So King Saul's got the entire nation hiding out. The Spirit of the Lord obviously has left him at this point. And David shows up. Right? And when David shows up, he's confronted. He's bringing meat and cheese to his brothers by his father's command because that's what David was willing to do. Nothing was above David. Need me to bring out some food to my brothers while they're on the battlefield? No problem. And one of the first people he's confronted with is his brother Eliab. Yeah, the appearance and the stature. Surely this is God's anointed. And Eliab challenges, did you just come out here to see the war? You're just coming out here as a spectator? Get on back to the sheep. What are you doing? 
Eliab was there when the anointing oil ran off of his head, dripped into his beard, went down all the way to the ground. He watched it happen. He watched number eight get anointed. Number one had to sit by and watch it take place. The one with the appearance, the one that classified, the one that met the natural criteria, the one that looked like on the outside checked all the boxes, right? Had to watch this young man. Well, then the second confrontation is they finally get him to King Saul. King Saul says, hey, if you're going to go out there, at least take my armor. Right? Because Saul got in on appearance, so he has to rely on appearance all the way through. And David tried it on, and it didn't fit. Why? David wouldn't lower himself to Saul's standard of appearance. He said, it's not about what I have on me. It's about who I have with me, and the Lord is with me. And I will shut him up this day and I will take his head from him. What are you basing God's selection process off of in your life? He called you. He select did you think he called you because you were good enough? Do you think he called you because you checked off the boxes? Man's boxes. Or maybe you're denying your worth and self-value today because you're still relying on man's idea rather than God's decision. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know in this season what you're basing your criteria of being selected upon and chosen and called upon by God. But he wants to restore within you and renew within you a new criteria. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast today. We trust you received a word from God. If you enjoyed this teaching, be sure to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. By subscribing, you'll be sure to receive a new message every week as soon as they are made available. And if you'd like to learn more about Anchor Faith Church, you can stop by our website at anchorfaithvaldosta.com. There you'll find our locations and service times, ministries that are available for you and your family. You can even give financially in support of the ministry. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time right here on the Anchor Faith Church podcast.